0: Christmas is in 15 days. Some of you, that's, you know, a reminder. Oh yeah, I've got some things I need to do. Some of you are ready for that day. I thought we might do a little pop quiz just to kind of see where you are. Um, if you are, have your Uh, Guys, you'll need to bring up the notes for me. If you have your Christmas shopping all done, would you raise your hand, please? All right? Some of you have been done since like July, but okay, a few of you, all right? Uh, If you have your Christmas wrapping all done, would you raise your hand? all, everything's taken care of, it's all under the tree. Even less. Okay, all right. Remember, 15 days. Now, 15 days. Uh, how many of you have your tree up and decorated and all of that? All right. Okay, good, good. So you know you're ready to go. Uh, how many of you have the lights all on the house coming on every night at 5.30 when it gets dark? Okay. Um, how many of you refuse to raise your hands no matter what pop quiz I get. <laughs> Uh, that this would, this would come. You've noticed some Christmas movies up above. Th- this one's for you. Uh, <laughs> it's the same day every year, and yet it seems to come upon us unexpectedly. It's it's the it doesn't even move around like you know. Thanksgiving is always a different date, but Christmas is always the same date. And yet, for as many Christmases, you know, this will be number 45 for me, uh, that I've celebrated. There's, all, you know, there's always this, oh, it, it's, here it is again. There's all these things that I have to do and I feel unprepared. Well, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about preparation today. And uh, more precisely, what happens when you're not prepared? We've been in this series for a few weeks now. Uh, We started talking about Jesus' awkward ancestry. Uh, We are in Matthew's account of the Incarnation, and Jesus, or Matthew, starts with this giant list of names that we often just skip right over, gloss right over. Think, well, I don't really need to know that, but we do so at our peril and our stunting of our spiritual growth because there's some lessons in there. Um, Jesus' family tree like yours and mine, uh, is full of sinful, seedy, and unexpected list of characters. Uh, A reminder that his goodness, his promises uh, that he keeps are based on his goodness, not on our goodness. Now, I ask you those questions kind of just to warm you up a little bit, but I do have a serious question for you, and it's this. Has God ever felt distant to you? I, I, I mean, maybe you're in that season right now. Maybe you have been in that season for a long period of time. But when it comes to you and God, when, when, you, when you take away all the exteriors and all of the, the busyness and all of the, all of the things that we let sort of run our lives... When it comes to you and your maker, how's that relationship? Have you ever felt distant from God, either because of situations or circumstances or even perhaps sin in your life? It's interesting to me that in the uh, opening account of Genesis... We read of the relationship between God and Adam and Eve, and it's perfect. It says they walked together in the garden. But of course, we know that was not to be a permanent circumstance. Because of their sin, all of a sudden, human beings, Adam and Eve, us, tend to hide ourselves from God and complaining that He feels distant. And so I just ask that, in the in the view of Scripture, has God ever felt distant to you? Now sin gets in the way of that relationship. You know, from the garden forward, from Genesis three on, there there is this massive separation between God and us. And even when God even when God draws near to his people, he's still got them at a distance. When he gave Moses the Ten Commandments, he said, I'm going to give you my law, Moses, but have the people consecrate themselves and stay at the base of the mountain. And I'm going to, I'm going to descend to the top of the mountain, but the, my people, they got to remain at a distance because I'm holy. As they wandered, as Steve talked about, as they left Egypt, uh, they were surrounded by this, this, they had this pillar of fire and this pillar of cloud. And so they saw God, but he was still at a distance. He gave instructions for the tabernacle and then later what would become the permanent form of that, the temple. There, There was all of these levels of distance between the people and God, depending on if you were a woman or a Gentile, if you were a priest, or if you, if you were the, the, the high priest, that could only go in to the Holy of Holies one time per year. Uh, just in their rhythm, they were constantly reminded that God was a, a distance. The prophet Isaiah says that all have sinned, all we like sheep have gone astray. You ever have an animal go astray? Kind of frustrating, isn't it? Maybe it's your dog or your cat or something, you open the door, or maybe they're an inside animal, and all of a sudden they dart out and you're chasing them down. Or, perhaps you just say, I bid thee farewell. <laughs> Isaiah compares us to sheep. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Not that God moved, we did. Everyone to his own way. The problem is not just today, it's been for all of our days. And the problem is very simple. Deity is distant. But not because God's moved, but because we have. I say this gently, because I don't know the state that you're in, in your relationship with God. But if God feels distant to you, I gently and lovingly ask you, why'd you move? In in 1512, the famous painter Michelangelo was tasked to paint the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, if you haven't ever been there per- uh, personally, as some of you have, but if you haven't been there personally, I'm sure you recognize the following picture. It's a part of, I think, 12 scenes that Michelangelo painted on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel that he called, titled, The Creation of Adam. It's just one of these scenes. And it illustrates from Michelangelo's eyes and vision the account from Genesis in which God gives life to Adam but most notable in that beautiful and powerful scene is this part of the picture Now on the against the plaster of the Sistine Chapel that gap is 3 quarters of an inch But it says everything about man's relationship to God God's hand is reaching and extending, and Adam's hand is pulling away, or at least not reaching. That tiny little gap says so much about our state with God. If you've ever been there, you get it. If you are here, you get it. And, and so, for you, for all of us, this morning I want to invite you into Matthew's account as we're continuing in our series. And we're in Matthew chapter 2, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 1. So please turn to Matthew chapter 1 in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, grab a pew Bible in front of you and turn to page 1,035. very first page of the New Testament. After 400 years of silence, after a long list of names, Matthew writes these words, starting in verse 18. Now the birth of Christ, of Jesus Christ, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph... Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. We read this story and rush through it because we know the other side of it. But if we can just park for just a minute as Matthew tells the account of a young couple, uh, righteous, though from some other details we have, probably fairly low in terms of worldly means, didn't have much. They had been together for a long time. Mary and Joseph both had good reputations as righteous, upstanding people within their families and in their communities. And then something happens in their lives which will change everything for them. But more than that, it changes everything for us. And we love that. But I just want you to come back here for just a minute before you rush on to the good stuff. I want you to realize, that before the, the, the working out of all the end of the story, there was a young man and a young woman who had some unimaginable difficulties. Some things that we observe as we think about this text. First, the, the, the parents had some predicaments some problems, some, some difficulties, and, and these things ought not be rushed by. It's easy for us to accept these things as things that just obviously they happened, as, especially if you're a person of the Scripture. This is my eighth time to preach on the Incarnation in some form or fashion, and we, it's so easy to go, oh yeah, they know this, I know this. But if we'll just pause for a moment and think about the challenges that this couple faced before they knew, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. The first problem is a pregnant virgin. Uh, Can you just imagine trying to explain that as a young lady? And we don't know exactly Mary's age, but, but from some external clues, we can perceive it's not outside of the realm of possibility that Mary may have been a somewhat in this age range. Can you imagine young ladies being righteous, being loved, being respected, in your family, within the community. And then something happens in you that cannot be explained naturally. That no one will believe, not even the man you're planning to marry. Can you just imagine for a moment what words would you use to try to put? We can't even explain the incarnation now. Imagine being a young girl trying to explain what she couldn't explain. This couple had been betrothed. And want was pull over for the, a minute, take the exit off the highway and... And just pause and help us understand this idea of betrothal. It's not one we have in our culture. Um, there were kind of three stages to marriage if you were a young Jewish couple. The first was engagement. This is when the couple was pretty young. And, and some engagements were often arranged by their parents. That wasn't outside the realm of possibility. The, the scripture doesn't say this is what happened. But in that culture it did happen. So to say that they were betrothed says that they were not only intending to be married, but they were to, had been together for a significant... that there was something in the works that people understood. Mary understood that Joseph would be her husband one day, and Joseph understood that Mary would be his wife one day. But this is when it was, was young. Then we step into what's called the betrothal, which is sort of the, it's, it's sort of the next step of engagement. This was more serious. This period of time lasted about a year, and and a betrothal could only be broken legally. You had to get the courts involved. You had to get the authorities involved to break a betrothal. You had to get divorced, even though you weren't technically married. It was more intense than just engagement. It was, there was more commitment to it. The families understood there was going to be a joining of families. And then the third step was marriage. After about a year of being betrothed, the wedding and then the consummation of that union would take place. So here we are within the betrothal, which is step two of three, before the wedding. And all of a sudden there's whispers and rumors about what's happened to Mary. And she tries to explain it. The Lord sent me a message. An angel told me. But but you understand that natural, the human, the flesh, is going to say, ah, come on, Mary. Who are you protecting? Mary, how could you? We raised you better than that. The, the 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 word begins to spread that Mary is pregnant before the time when pregnancy was okay. And so Matthew clearly expresses to us what is argued by some scholars about the virgin birth. Matthew just lays it out there. She was a virgin. She was a young woman, but she was more than just a young woman. She she was pure. She was chaste. Uh, she and Mary, or she and Joseph, had not consummated their relationship, and yet she was pregnant, which usually only happens post consummation. So Matthew's clear that Mary is innocent in the matter, and and that she is. But but the perspective that we get from Matthew is largely not Mary's perspective. Luke will do more of that. But the perspective in Matthew is of Joseph, and that is predicament number two. Her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So although they're not yet married... They can only break a betrothal by a divorce. Joseph is a good man, a righteous man. He has he has a reputation within the community. And the woman to whom he is betrothed has come up pregnant, and Joseph, being a just man, understands that if this has happened in the way that he would normally assume that a a pregnancy would happen, that he couldn't go through with the marriage. We say, Joseph, don't be so hasty. We know the rest of the story. Joseph, up until this point, has not been given that revelation. And yet, what I love about Joseph, he, we don't get the sense from the text that he's bitter, that he's seeking revenge, that he's wrathful towards Mary... But, but quite the opposite. I, 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 can't, I can't explain it. Lord knows. I hope it's not what I think it means. But I can't marry her. But if I divorce her in a public way, boy, that'll bring shame on her and on her family. And I'm just not going to do it. So he, he talks to a lawyer, but quietly. I want to see if I can handle this in a quiet way. I've known Mary forever. I've known her family forever. Love her, love them. Don't want to bring shame or stigma upon any of them. From his mind up until that point, he had to do a severe thing. Divorce was a severe thing then and now. And yet, Joseph, being the man that he was, wanted to do a severe thing in the tenderest of manners. And I think that's admirable. Now, pull yourself back from these couple of verses and think about their perspective for just a minute. We start at the beginning with saying, have you ever felt God is distant? Can you hear the prayers of Mary? Father, Lord, Adonai, what are you doing? You know my innocence. You know what people will say you know what Joseph is doing? Listen to the prayers of Joseph. Lord God, help me, give me wisdom, Father. Mary says, it's not true. And everyone else says it's true. And both of them together say, God, where are you? Where are you in this? In all of this mess, God's been silent, for the most part, for 400 years. And in this young Jewish couple, something's happening, and you know that they loved God. But they didn't understand how God could let such a thing happen. And the silence is deafening. If you've ever been in a place in your life where you didn't understand what God was doing, you can identify with Mary and Joseph. God, where are you? God, I really need to hear from you. God, I really could use an answer. God probably felt very distant, but he wasn't. God sends a messenger to Joseph. The rest of the scripture, as we continue reading, the angel makes a pronouncement. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." Joseph is troubled by Mary's pregnancy, by her future, by what he should do. And though he, he had resolved to divorce in a quiet way, in a tender way, in a compassionate way, you can tell he's still wrestling with that decision. And an angel appears. And, and the, the appearance is different. To Mary, Gabriel just shows up. <laughs> to Joseph the angel appears in a dream. It's a study for another time, but God often reveals himself or his messages through dreams. Not always, but this is one of those occasions where, where I'm, I'm sure it was so clear and so vivid that Joseph would never forget it. The angel Starts with this way, Joseph, son of David. Now we again kind of rush over that, but that son of David, if you remember what we talked about last week, Joseph is being addressed as who he is in the story of God. He's reminding Joseph of who he is, and he's also at the same time reminding him of the one who made that promise, son of David. No, not David didn't make that promise. God made that promise. He's reminding Joseph of who he is and also who God is. A human example. Most of you call me Toby. Did you know that's not my real name? A few of you know my real name. It's on my driver's license. It's a name hardly anyone calls me, except my mother. And when I was younger, when I heard my full first middle, full legality shouted out in the house... That was done for one reason and one purpose. To get my attention. Tobin Lee Levering, get down here right this instant. And that, I'm sure the fear of God was in Joseph. But second to that is hearing your full legal name from your mother. It gets your attention. That's the purpose. And that's what the angel's doing here. Son of David. Don't forget who you are. Don't forget the promise made to you and to your family. Remember that. Then he says, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The message version of that would be, wife that girl. If you like it, put a ring on it. Don't be afraid. You finish the commitment because God is doing something very special here with her and with you. Though you don't understand it, this child is special. Just in this text alone, he's conceived by the Holy Spirit. He's the Savior of many. He's the fulfillment of promise. He's the embodiment of God. His name, although Jesus, if you study it, Jesus was actually a fairly common name in that culture. But Jesus, this Jesus, born of the Virgin, though he had a common name, he had an uncommon purpose. The meaning behind his name means salvation from Jehovah God. We're told in Acts chapter 4 that salvation is given, there's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. A very special name, although it was a very common name. Now as we think about these two things, we're going we're to finish this out next week, at least this part of it, I, I want you to remember a couple of things. Number one, God's working does not require your understanding. God works in spite of you. God works in spite of your understanding. If you understand what God is doing, then God isn't really doing what God does. God works. If your, if your understanding can be symbolized by this imaginary circle, if God only works in this imaginary circle, God's not really being God. God does his best work outside of the circle. Think about it in the story of scripture and in the story of your life. When has God often shown himself to be the mightiest, most powerful, most faithful, most loving, gracious, almighty Jehovah God? Was it in the circle of your understanding? No, my guess is not. Proverbs says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make the path straight. If you don't understand what God's doing, good. That's just proof that God is still God. Mary didn't understand it at the time until she was told. Joseph didn't understand it until he got a, a, a dream that he never forgot. You are going to have things in your life that you do not understand let me tell you I'm coming from a personal place here 2023 has been a year outside of my understanding and I cannot limit God to my understanding and God forbid that any of us do and God forbid that Mary would and God forbid that Joseph would God's going to do things that you don't understand and in that moment you should take the position of Job and say Praise the Lord. The name of the Lord be praised. My understanding will just have to catch up. Second, God's distance does not mean God's absence. You see, in the fall, you and I moved away from God. We were forced out of the garden. Yet in the incarnation, God moves The entire story of Scripture is us moving away from God and God coming after us. But in in, in the incarnation, God moves in closer than He's ever been in the flesh. God with us. Read Isaiah again. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid... On him. The iniquity of us all. God feels distant in your life, perhaps. That does not mean God is absent in your life. And the third promise we see is that God has closed the gap. Paul preached quoting one of the prophets of the Athens, the Athenian people, that God is not far from any of us. In the incarnation, that is eternally true. God closes the eternal gap. God is truly like never before with us. And he's working more than you realize. And so if you're feeling distant from God, my, my encouragement to you this morning is you need not. You need not. God's still working despite your understanding. God's still present even though he feels absent. God is closing the gap each and every day. In the eternal sense, God has closed the eternal gap through Jesus Christ, his son. If you feel distant from God, a very natural question to me is, are you now in Christ Jesus? Because that's the only way you can truly be close to God is in Christ. It doesn't happen outside of him. And so if you're not in Christ this morning, I want to invite you to do what Jesus said to do, to believe and be baptized. If you're ready to make the decision to to put your life, to submit your life, to yield your life to Christ Jesus, we'd be honored and pleased to help you with that. We're going to have some elders at the back, and they will be waiting for you if you want to respond to the gospel invitation and, and do that this very day. There's no better day like today than to make that happen. Now is the day of salvation, the scripture says. If you're ready to do that, head toward the back in this next song, or if you have any other spiritual need by which we may serve, please head to the back as together we stand and sing.